that in mind, we've been bringing up folks uh, who are members of the church who have been here um, from pretty close to the beginning or from the beginning. And so this morning, I have the great privilege of inviting up my wife and kids and mother and father-in-law. So let's give them a round of applause as they come on up. Um, The church starts in the heart of God. Paul says to Titus in Titus 1, he says, we have hope in eternal life. And eternal life is something which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. God promised eternal life before the ages began, and at the proper time, he manifested it in his word through the preaching of the gospel. That's what the church does. The church is called to preach the gospel and make disciples. God promised that in eternity past. We've said this before, when we plant churches, we're sowing in, reaping in history what God has sowed in eternity. The church started in God's heart. This church started in God's heart. But after that, the first place it started was in this circle. And uh, I could spend a long time telling you a lot of stories and a lot of joy and a lot of pains, and um, it's been a long process for us, Um, uh, but um, I'll give it over to these guys, my wife and uh, Maddie and Laura and Jamie, my mother and father-in-law. We've been talking, planning, working. I'm getting a lot of feedback on the mic here, if you could fix that. Um, We've been talking, planning, working through what it would look like to plant a church for a long time. Um, And I'd love to hear a little bit of your guys' experience from that. What's what's it been like for you, uh, if you could share with everyone, being being a part of the church for so long? Sure, good morning, everybody. Um, Yeah, I mean, honestly, uh, we didn't even know what a church plant meant. And, uh, but, uh, just as God, that's better, just as God uh, has called us and, and uh, directed us at this time in our lives, we said, okay, we'll, uh, we'll roll with it. And uh, it's been really amazing to see his faithfulness, his faithfulness in uh, the process and uh, going from our, our home to finding uh, and, uh, and this place being available for us. And then, uh, honestly, the, uh, what's also encouraging is, you know, we, we have the, the privilege to hear God's word each week, not deviating from scripture. And I, you know, having that confidence in God's word is gonna continue to draw and grow the Union Church. And uh, it's also humbling each week to see everybody who helps, who can, is able to help, you know, get here at eight o'clock, 7.30, and just contribute, and uh, no matter how big or small the task is. So it's, uh, God continues to you know, build the church, and uh, it's just awesome to be a part of it, and awesome to share it with all of you, too. Yeah. I think Mabel wants to say something. Um, yeah, I agree with what Jamie said. Uh, I recently got to witness a childbirth Um, a few weeks ago, and I couldn't help but think about how much church planting is like childbirth. Um, Labor, pain, (laughs) sweat, hope, courage. Um, So yeah, that's kind of what it was like. Um, But then there's joy, and there's you, and uh, there's us, and um, we all got to kind of be in the delivery room 
of Union Church. And I think, uh, like Jamie said, just we didn't realize we were going to be called to this. Um, when Maddie married Aaron, we had no idea we were getting ready to do something like this, but we know he did. And uh, I, I think for me, I've really learned to love the church, um, which sounds really dumb, but I, I feel like I've learned to love the church from the inside out and um, really be able to witness God's like beautiful plan, his purpose in it, um, how it operates, and um, just to be able to see us get bigger hopefully more mature in Christ, better at loving the one another's and loving our neighbors. Um, yeah, it's been great. It's all, be, all because of Christ. And so, yeah, that's my story. Mabel's a little destroyer, trust me. This is nothing. Um, yeah, I think for me, before we started church planting, Aaron and I would pray for faith, lots of faith, that God would increase our faith, and um, he has, but we still, we still continue to pray for that, and when I think back on the whole process of when we started with prayer meetings, and Haddon was just a couple months old, to Saturday nights at my mom and dad's house, to here, it's just, I've seen God's faithfulness, and um, it's been a hard year, but um, a blessing at the same time. So we're really thankful. Mm-hmm. Amen. Well, I'm obviously thankful for you guys. <laughs> Let's give them a round of applause as, uh, as we thank them for all their labor. All right. Well, what a joy to uh, be able to introduce you to my family and. Uh, reflect on uh, what God's done the last year uh, and even prior to that. Um, Today we're in John chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand. One of the ushers will get you a Bible. Um, You're going to want to follow along. We're going to cover the first 17 verses of John 13. Um, And this is a good text uh, in God's providence uh, for us to be in as uh, as we celebrate the significance of today. Um, We're going to look at this theme of love We're going to see love on display, love from the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We've been in John since uh, shortly after we launched, and as we study through John, as one reads through John, uh, the vision of the cross of Christ becomes progressively clearer. It starts out, and the beginning of John, we can look in the horizon and see the cross in the distance can see the silhouette of it, and as we make progress through the book, we begin to see the shape and the outline and the form of it, and as we get closer and farther along in the book, we begin to see the color, some more details of the cross, and now as we get into John chapter 13, we're going to begin to see the splinters on the cross. We're going to begin to see the cross now in striking detail. And in 18 hours from now, in the timeline of John, in 18 hours, the Lord Jesus Christ will be hung up on that cross and we'll see not only the splinters, but we'll see the Savior's blood in living color. 
John chapter 13, and the timeline is Thursday night of Passion Week. Jesus will be executed on Friday, the next day. Thursday night is covered in John by chapters 13 through 17. We have five chapters devoted to one evening. We have five chapters devoted to hours of conversation. This is not a period of time that takes days or weeks or months or years. It takes a few hours. Five chapters. Jesus is with his disciples. His public ministry has ended. He's withdrawn now from the public eye and he spends the rest of this evening in one room with 12 men. What we see in John 13 through 17 is beautiful, deep, profound. It's glorious. No one has ever, aside from Jesus himself and Paul, no one's ever gone to heaven and come back. But in John 13 through 17, heaven comes down to us. The veil is lifted by Jesus himself. And the glory of God is put on display for all to see. Our vision of God will be magnified and enlarged in John 13 through 17. And love, this theme of love, the word love, it becomes the most common word in these chapters and really it becomes the dominant theme in these chapters. And it's the theme today for us, love, love. Jesus loves and serves his people so we might love and serve him and others. Jesus loves and serves his people so that we, his people, might love and serve him and others. Jesus enables us to love and serve others because he loved and served us humbly. That's what we're gonna see in these opening verses of John chapter 13. If you look with me at John 13, one, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them till the end. That's the first thing for us to consider, church. Jesus loves his own. Jesus loves his own. It's Thursday night, and Jesus says, my hour has come. His hour is here, the hour that he's been waiting for, the hour that was planned in eternity past by God, the hour that he came to earth for, the culmination of his mission, the climax of his ministry, that hour is here. That hour is now upon him. The hour where he will go to the cross, where he will receive the sin of all who would believe in him, where he will be judged by God, where he will accomplish the gospel work. That is the gospel. Jesus lives a life in our place. And he dies a death in our place. He lives a righteous life we could never live. He dies a death that we should die. And in doing so, God's wrath is poured out on him so that it won't be poured out on us when we believe in him. That's what he's going to do in a few hours. 
The wrath of God is breathing down his neck. That's what he's looking forward to. Imagine if you know your time is coming. You know your time is coming. Reading about a World War I battle where a whole generation of young men gets wiped out in a battle. Imagine you're on the front lines. Your commander says, go. You jump out of the front lines and you go and you get mowed down. Next line's up, go, get mowed down. Next line's up, go, get mowed down. And you're 10 lines back and you're just thinking 15 minutes till I go out there. 10 minutes, five minutes. What do you do? What are you thinking? What is filling your mind? What is coming out of your heart? Well, that's where Jesus is. His hour has come and he knows it. And friends, in the midst of that, this is what John wants us to know. This is what's on Jesus' mind. He loved his own who were in the world till the end, to the end. He loved his own. That's the most obvious thing about Jesus in his last hours. That he loved his own. This is what John wants us to know. This is what will be displayed here in this chapter. We need to define love as the Bible defines it. For us to understand what Jesus is thinking, feeling, seeing, expressing, what's coming from him, what John's writing about, he loved his own. We need to define that. Love is the unselfish, loyal, and benevolent intention and commitment for the good of another. Love is the unselfish, loyal, and benevolent intention and commitment for the good of another. Being committed to the good of another without personal gain, without need to receive back. Love is not primarily an emotion, Though it can be manifest in emotions, love is not primarily a feeling. Love is not a sentiment. Love is bold, compassionate, tender and tough, loyal, committed, devotion to another, devotion to their good. And Jesus demonstrates perfect love. For his own. Jesus loves his own with a perfect love, and this is what will be demonstrated. A full love. A full love. He says, to the end. We might read that as his life's about to end. He loved them till the end. It is also true, but that's not what this means. He loved them to the end. He loved them to the uttermost. He loved them to the max. He loved them with the greatest possible love, the cup is full. He loved them with the greatest capacity possible. God's capacity for love is infinite. All attributes of God, who he is, his love, his grace, his compassion, his wrath, all of it, it's all infinite. So when Jesus loves his own, he's loving us with an infinite love. 
Say, I've exhausted God's love. I've exhausted his care for me. I've exhausted his grace. Not so. He's set his infinite love on us. That's what John's saying here. To the end, to the uttermost, to the maximum, Jesus loved his own to the end. That's the love that's been set upon us. Jesus is not obligated to love to the end. He's not obligated to love infinitely. He doesn't love demons infinitely. There used to be angels who fell. Jesus no longer has this love for them. It wasn't infinite, but he chooses to love us that way. He's chosen to set infinite love to the end love, everlasting love, unending love on his people. He's chosen to do that. That's why the cross is necessary. He needs to go to the cross. He's chosen to go to the cross so he can satisfy God's infinite wrath towards us. That's gonna be poured out on him. He's gonna satisfy that so he can reconcile us to God. So he can love us with an infinite, perfect love. That's what Jesus has chosen to do out of no obligation, out of no forcefulness, out of no last resort type of thing. He's chosen in grace to do that. Friend, if you're a Christian, you need to know that Jesus has a perfect love for you. An endless love has been set on you if you're in Christ, if you're in Christ. Not if you said a prayer when you were four and nothing changed ever after that. You've lived for yourself your whole life. That's not what I'm talking about. If you've repented of sin, you're walking with Jesus, you fail, you ask for forgiveness, he's forgiven you, you're striving to look like Christ, it's manifest in your life, you're a Christian, Jesus loves you with an endless love. Endless love. Jesus loves his own. Well, doesn't Jesus love the world? Maybe you're thinking, doesn't he love the world? I mean, John 3, 16, right? God loves the world. Yes, he does love the world. That's true. That's why he came out of love for a lost world. He came in love to seek lost, the lost, to rescue the lost. But here in John 13, 1, this is more specific The object of love is more specific. Read it with me again. Having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them till the end. He's loved his own who were in the world. This is more specific. Jesus came to a fallen world out of love, certainly, but he came to call a people out of the world. He he came to call a people out of the world to himself, a people on whom he sets his love, a people on whom he gives an inheritance to, a people on whom he gives grace to, a people on whom the Holy Spirit will take up residence in and actually indwell, live in them, a people who he will give perfect righteousness to. This isn't God's general love for the lost world. As sweet as that is, this is the result of his love for a lost world, that he brings Individual, actual individuals from the lost world into his family and sets his perfect love, familial love on them, on us. 
on his church. He loved his own who were in the world. That's what he came for, to call people out. And friends, that's what's beginning to happen here in John. That's what Jesus has been working towards his whole ministry. And that's what's beginning to happen. This will be culminated at the cross. And it's still happening today. The same exact thing is still happening today. You and I, church, are the people of God who have been called out of the world, fully known by God, all the ugly spots, and yet fully loved by God. Fully known and fully loved, never to change. That is never going to change. Once God decides to love you, there's nothing you can do to change that. Once God decides to love you, that's irreversible. That's good news. That's good news. Romans 8, Paul says it this way, what can separate us from the love of God? What can separate us? There's nothing in spiritual that can separate us. There's nothing on earth that can separate us. There's no enemies that can separate us. There's no bad thoughts that can separate us. There's no sinful actions that will separate us. There's, there's nothing that can separate us from God's love. That's a good thing. It's endless. It's everlasting. It is to the end. We saw in John 10, Jesus is the good shepherd. Well, a good shepherd does not leave the door of the sheep fold open and say, well, you have free will, go ahead. It's not what Jesus does. Silly sheep, we would run out sometimes. No, Jesus says, I'm gonna protect you from yourself. I'm gonna protect you from Satan. I'm gonna protect you from the world. I'm gonna set my love upon you, my grace upon you, not just that forgives from sin, but that protects, that prevents. That's the love that Jesus has set upon his church We don't look in ourselves for worth, for value. We don't love ourselves more. We don't need to love ourselves more to fix our problems. That won't work. No, we look to Jesus. We look outside of ourselves to Jesus, who has perfect, full, everlasting love for his own. That's where our worth is found. That's where our identity must be grounded, in that love. Fully known and fully loved. Fully known and fully loved. That's where our identity is grounded. That's where our worth comes from. Not from in here, but from out there, from him, looking to him, receiving from him. And this love, church, is about to be beautifully and humbly displayed his love and service will be received by 11 of his disciples, but it will be despised and rejected by one of them. Verse two, during supper when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, that's to betray Jesus, Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands, that he, was going, uh, that he had come from God and was going to God, rose up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he began to wash their feet. We see the beginning of this act start to happen, and yet we see a dark cloud over the whole event, and that cloud is Judas. 
the devil had already put into his heart, the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Jesus. They're having the Passover meal. They're about to partake in a sweet, good, communal time of fellowship. And Judas is there. Judas is there. Judas, instead of serving God, is serving Satan. Judas, instead of being aligned with God, is aligned with Satan. Judas, instead of being on mission with God, is on mission with Satan. How did this happen? How did this happen? How is it that Judas is sitting at the Passover dinner with Jesus the night before his execution, and he's working with, under the inspiration of Satan? Judas, for years, has been taught by Jesus. He's seen Jesus work. He's heard Jesus speak. He's watched Jesus do ministry. He's watched him counsel. He's heard his advice. He's seen his wisdom. He's seen him heal. He's had fireside conversations with the Lord God creator of the universe for years now. He's been saying the right things. He's been doing some of the right things. He's in the right place, certainly, but he has a hard heart. He thought Jesus was gonna set up a kingdom. Now, all the disciples thought that, but that was Judas's main motivation. He thought there's gonna be a kingdom. There's gonna be opportunity for me. There's gonna be benefits for me. There's going to be prestige, all in the name of God and ministry. So this is an opportunity. I'm going to, I'm going to stick this out. Once Judas saw that this wasn't going the right way, once Jesus started saying things like, oh, Mary's gift of perfume, that was to prepare me for my burial. What? Burial? That's not what I want to hear. This thing started to go the wrong way, so Judas hatched a plot because he didn't care about Jesus. He cared about opportunity. It all sounded right, but that's what he was looking for. That's what he was waiting for. Judas was self-seeking, self-serving, self-honoring. He didn't love Jesus. He looked like one of God's people, but he was not one of God's people in church, there's still Judas's today. There's still Judas's today. They look the part, they say the part. They may even act the part, but they're not one of God's people. May we be thankful. We said this in John 11 when we were 12 and uh, we saw Judas rear his ugly head there as well. May we be thankful for Judas. May we be thankful for the stark warning that is Judas's life, that it's possible to be among God's people. It's possible to be very kind and polite and nice and to study the right things and to do the right things and not be one of God's people. You know that's possible. So may we not think because we're in the right place, going through the right motions, that everything's fine. No, it's a heart issue. Judas had a hard heart. He had a hard heart. He didn't love Jesus. He loved opportunity. 
May we be thankful for the warning that is Judas's life. It's not about how much information we receive. Is information important? Yeah, of course. No question about that. The gospel starts with information, but it's not about information. It's about information that leads to transformation. Judas had all the right information, no transformation, and the devil is in his heart. The devil is in his heart. He put it in Judas's heart. Judas is not being forced against his will to do something, to betray Jesus. No, he's very willing. He's cashed in on 30 pieces of silver, right? He's willing. He wants silver. He wants money. It's not that Judas is unwilling. He's not being forced to do anything. I mean, he, 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 he cashed in for 30 pieces of silver. If you look back in John 12, Mary gives this beautiful, costly ointment to Jesus. She cracks the neck open. She pours it on his head. It goes all the way down to his feet. She washes his feet. He's the worthy king. She's expressing her love, her honor, her gratitude. 30 pieces of silver would be about one-third of the cost of Mary's gift, about a third of the cost. Mary gives this costly gift out of love for Jesus. Judas takes a third of that to give Jesus up. Judas is certainly willing, but what John hews us in on is that though Judas is not forced, this plot is nothing less than satanic. Satan had put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Yes, this plot is nothing short of satanic. Judas is there. Judas will be served. Judas will be loved, but Judas will reject and despise the display of love. Jesus loves his own. And number two, Jesus displays his love for his own. He displays his love for his own. He loves his own and he displays his love for his own. Verse three, Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist and poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. God had given all things into Jesus' hand, John says. That would be all power, all glory, all dominion. You'll remember last week we saw the, the, John's vision of Isaiah, rather Isaiah's vision of Jesus in Isaiah 6 holy, exalted, lifted up, angelic beings flying around him, singing to him, worshiping him as their full-time job. That's what Jesus is. He's lofty. He's glorious. He's majestic. That glory is veiled while he's on earth, but he still has it. He still has it. He still is king. He still is glorious. With all that power and all that glory and everything delivered into your hand, what would you expect from that king? What would you expect? You'd expect maybe servants to be attending to his every need, waiting on him hand and foot. You'd expect the finest suits and clothing. You'd expect secret service to be buzzing around, making sure nothing happens. That does happen, certainly. Mary's gift is an example of that. She acknowledges the king's worth and serves him. Isaiah 6 is an example of that. That does happen. Jesus is worthy of worship. Jesus is worshiped. 
His people do worship him. But that's not all that happens. That's not all that happens. Instead of being served here, the Son, the glorious God, eternal God, creator, God stoops down, literally, gets on his knees and serves his disciples. He wears a towel, not royal robes. He holds a basin, not a scepter, and he picks up filthy feet and washes them. This would be customary in those days. You travel on roads that are dirty, that are dusty, that are muddy. You have animals traveling on the road. You have manure, urine, trash goes in the road. There's no pavement. There's no shoes. There's sandals that don't protect much. Some of you already don't like feet. It's like, I just don't even want to see feet anyways. This is that except every gross thing you could think of. And they're at a table reclining. They'd be leaning on their arm. Their feet would be propped up. The other person would be leaning right there. You got to wash the feet, right? You got to wash the feet. You're eating dinner. You look to your right. Someone's gross feet are there. Not, not ideal. So this would be something that would have to happen. But this was the job of a slave, of the lowest type of slave. Not even all slaves would do this, just the lowest slaves. Wash my feet, slave. That's the slave's job. Let's let the slave do that. This is truly a slave's job. Jesus washes their feet. Jesus performs a slave's job. Jesus scrapes the dirt off the disciples' feet. Philippians 2, 6 through 7, Paul says it this way, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality of God, with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. That actually should be translated slave, being born in the likeness of men, the exact opposite of what you'd expect from a king, the exact opposite takes on the form of a slave, does the job of a slave. This is a different king. His is a different kingdom, different kind of king. We might rightly expect this king to be served, but he serves. Additionally, with a traitor in the room and with Satan in the room, we might expect for this king to righteously smite that person, to pour out wrath on his betrayer, but friends, he serves him too. He serves him too. He's washing the disciples' feet who love him. That alone is an outstanding, shocking act of love, display of love. But his betrayer, his betrayer, think about that. Think about a time where you have been betrayed, where you've been really hurt, where you've been really affected. Someone's wounded you. What do you want to do? Have you ever thought about serving them? What kind of king is this who serves in the most humble of ways even the worst traitor? 
what kind of king is this? We can hardly, I mean, we have a hard enough time serving our spouse when we're upset with them. Jesus serves like a slave, his traitor. This is an act of humble, willing, servant, love, and in doing so, Jesus is completely violating all social norms. Yeah, this is a different kingdom, and he is a different king. And the disciples are in silent astonishment. Nobody says anything until Jesus comes to Peter. Verse 6, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Do you wash my feet? Do you wash my feet? That's how the construction of that sentence would sound. Do you wash my feet? No way. This is too much. This is too far. You are not, you can't do that. You're not allowed to do that. This is opposite. I'm your servant. I'm your servant. Friends, Jesus is teaching his disciples here. He's teaching them something. Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand, but afterwards you will understand. He's teaching them something. He's taught them already, right? He says to them in another passage in another gospel, he says, you know, some people have power in the world and they use their power and they use their authority and they use their greatness to rule over people, to lord it over people. They they boss people around. They just want to tell people what to do, but you're different than that. No, if you want to be great, then you become the servant of all. He's taught them that. He's taught them how to pray. He's given them a template for prayer. He said to them, when you pray, here's the template, pray like this, your kingdom come, your will be done. Well, for praying to God, our kingdom come, the implication of that is that our kingdom must go. So he's taught them this before. Now he's showing them. He's been teaching them this for years. He's been showing them in different ways to be sure. Now he's showing them explicitly, obviously, friends, this is what it looks like. Disciples, this is what it looks like. You're not gonna get it yet. You'll get it later. He's teaching his disciples here. Verse eight, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. You shall never Wash my feet. Friends, he's, he's patient with them. You're, you're not gonna get this now. You'll get it later. You can't wash my feet. He still washes his feet. He's patient with them. He knows they're not gonna understand all of this. He knows they're not gonna receive it in the right way. He knows they're not gonna appreciate what a humble act of love this is. Certainly they get the customary norms, but they don't, they don't get it. They don't get it yet. He's patient with them. You, I mean, you, you have to just be struck by how many times throughout the Gospels the disciples don't get what Jesus is doing and he never kicks them to the curb. He keeps working, keeps pursuing. They keep loving him, but they're hard-hearted and hard-headed oftentimes and he keeps pursuing them. He loves them, he serves them, he is patient with them. But Peter clearly still isn't getting it, like Jesus said. You shall never wash my feet. Jesus said to him, answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Boom. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Wash everything 
if that's what it takes, his tune changes. He's, Peter is impetuous. He's brash. But friends, he, he wants to be connected to Christ. That's what he wants. He, he just kind of speaks too quickly sometimes. He, he really should just think first. It's easy for us to point that out. But he wants to be connected to Christ. That's what he wants. That's what he wants more than anything. He's going to blow it here in a couple of hours. He's going to deny his master, but ultimately he loves Jesus. He wants to be connected to Christ, and he's in the process of learning. If I don't do this, you won't have any share with me. Well, wash everything then. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. And that's why he said, not all of you are clean. He's cleansing them. He's cleansing their feet. But this cleansing is not mainly external. That's what he's doing, but it's pointing toward something internal. It's not the cleansing of the feet that's important. It's the cleansing of the heart. It's the cleansing of the heart. He washes their feet as a humble love gift, but this points to a greater cleansing, a greater cleansing. And Jesus says to them, you, you are clean. And imagine if Jesus was here and he looks at you and says, you are saved. You are saved. Even if you don't question your salvation, wouldn't that just be a sweet sound? Well, those promises are still here in Scripture. Jesus does speak to us. You are clean. If you're in Christ, you are clean. Your feet get dirty. There needs to be periodic cleansing. You walk through the world, you get dusty, you get muddy, but you are clean. You are clean. Some of us understand we're forgiven. We understand we're forgiven, but we don't understand we're we're cleansed. There's a one-time cleansing. There's a one-time forgiveness. There's a one-time salvation. And then there's an ongoing process of being renewed and being cleansed. But, but you're cleansed already. Some of us understand we're forgiven, but we also need to understand we're clean. 1 John 1.9 says that If we confess with our mouth and if we believe that Jesus has forgiven us of sins, we are forgiven and we're cleansed, that he's faithful to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Our sins are forgiven and our person, our heart, our soul is actually cleansed. That's what this foot washing is pointing forward to. Ongoing cleansing, but not for Judas. You are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That'd be Judas. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. Jesus didn't lose his salvation. He just never had it. Jesus didn't lose anything. He just never was. But Jesus loves and serves him anyways. He serves him anyways. Judas is not part of Christ's fold, but he serves him humbly anyways. Jesus' love is displayed to his own. And thirdly, Jesus calls his own to love like him. He calls his own to love like him. Verse 12, 
When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. He's making an argument here from lesser to greater. If I've done this, you're Lord, you call me Lord and you're right. And if I've done this to you, then certainly you ought to do it to one another. Might ask, we have to wash each other's feet. Is that what we're doing after service before lunch? That doesn't sound good. No, that's not what we're doing. It's not the form that carries over. It's the principle. The form is customary. The principle is what's important. No, we don't have to get out of basin, wash each other's feet. That's not a thing in our culture. The principle is what is important here. Love, serve, humbly serve one another. That's what Jesus is saying. I've done this to you, and I'm the king of the universe. You ought to do that to one another. You ought to serve one another. You ought to humbly love and care for one another. Real, humble, loving service to one another. Pursuing the good of one another without selfish motives, pursuing the good of another without thinking about personal gain. What does this look like, church? Jesus says here, I've done this as an example for you to follow. What does it look like for us? How do we follow that example? What will look different in our lives this week because of what Jesus has said? You think about your loved ones, What does it look like to serve your loved ones? What does it look like to serve your spouse? What does it look like to serve your friends? What does it look like to serve your fellow church members? What does it look like? Oh, we all agree with that. We love that. We should do that. Except when she's not being appreciative of all my hard work. Except when he's not listening to what I want him to do. He's not paying enough attention to me. I'm very hurt by him and I'm very bitter now. I don't want to serve him. He doesn't, we, we, he doesn't deserve it. Okay? Disciples don't deserve it. Humble love service isn't based on I deserve it. It's not based on what you've given me so now I'll give back to you. It's not based on what am I gonna get from you if I do this. That's all selfish service. No, it's seeking the good of another, whether we feel like they deserve it or not. Seeking the welfare of your spouse, whether they're paying attention to all of your needs, which they should. Don't want to write that off. But even if they're not, we still humbly, lovingly serve. What does it look like with a difficult friend? What does it look like with a church member that you might be in conflict with? What does it look like with someone you're discipling your loved ones. Friend, what does it look like with difficult people in the workplace or a classmate, someone you're sharing the gospel with, or all of a sudden you go to a restaurant and the waiter becomes an animal? It's like, oh, this, I didn't order this. I don't want to talk to your man. Just give me, we're not, I'm not tipping you at all. All of a sudden we become barbaric when we enter into a restaurant. It's like something changes. We walk into a retail environment. <laughs> Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, or whatever. Humbly, lovingly serve, whether we feel like we've been served rightly or not. 
I've given you an example that you ought to do with one another. Now, that's including difficult people. Jesus, when you're having a problem loving a difficult person, think about the fact that Jesus washed the feet of Judas. Jesus washed Judas's filthy feet. Think about that. And friends, we love patiently. We serve patiently. Verse 7 What I'm doing now, you do not understand, but afterwards you will understand. Friends, love is patient. It's patient. It's patient. That doesn't mean you'll never get frustrated. It doesn't mean it will never be hard, but it means in the frustration you keep pursuing. In humility, we count others greater than ourselves. We don't think to ourselves, maybe they're taking advantage of me. Maybe they're, maybe, maybe stop. We count others greater than ourselves. That's what it looks like. We love patiently. We serve humbly. And ultimately, church, wrap up here. Ultimately, all of this points to Jesus. All of this is pointing to Jesus. That's the purpose of us loving, serving each other, to meet each other's needs, but as a greater sign to point to Jesus. In a few weeks, John 13, 34 through 35 Jesus says, a new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you, so you also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We can't preach the gospel without words. We need to explain what the gospel is. We do need to live in a way that demands gospel questions. That's what Jesus is saying. There ought to be something so different. There ought to be something so humble. There ought to be something so obvious that people know, that people know. Foot washing is an act of humble service. It's Jesus' love on display in an amazing and unparalleled way. But ultimately, friends, this cleansing is pointing to a greater cleansing. This display of love is pointing to a greater display of love. This Display of love is pointing to the cross where the true cleansing is one, where full love, perfect love, divine love is displayed. And in a few hours, in a few hours, the eternal, holy, sinless God will be hung up on that cross that we see the splinters of now. We'll see his blood there soon. He's gonna be hung up there because we deserve it? No. Because we understand the sacrifice, the depth of the sacrifice? No, not because we get it. Because he'll get us to do something for him if he does that? No. No. He goes to the cross to cleanse us. He goes to the cross to display his perfect love for us. He goes to the cross in our place because he has chosen to love us. He's chosen to pursue us. He's chosen to rescue his enemies. That's love. That's love. That's what we get to respond to this morning, church. We get to respond by singing to Jesus. We get to respond by receiving his love. If you're not a Christian, we invite you to receive Christ's love for you. And for us who are Christians, we get to respond and remember Christ's love perfectly displayed on the cross by partaking of communion together for Christians as a church 
family. I will pray and we will respond. Father God, we thank you for your gospel. Jesus, we thank you for coming to earth, for dying in our place, for displaying your love, for cleansing us from all unrighteousness, for forgiving us from all sins. We thank you that you've condescended to such a degree, Lord, to serve sinners, to rescue sinners, to wash the feet of sinners. Give us grace, Holy Spirit to serve and love you, to serve and love others like you. In your good name, amen.